If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's a wonderful little exchange of poems between Raleigh and the Queen that survives. And again, we're so lucky with Sir Walter Raleigh because his life is phenomenally well documented. Even in his own time, people were drawn to him like moths to a flame. They would write about him, they'd write for him, write against him. That was Anna Beer talking about Walter Raleigh. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Anna Beer, an author and researcher based at the University of Oxford. Her most recent book is a new biography of Walter Raleigh. And that was the subject of her conversation with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne. 
And so today on the podcast, I'm joined by Anna Beer. Hi, Anna. Hi there. Um, and so, of course, you're the author of a new biography of Sir Walter Raleigh, who was one of the Elizabethan age's most towering figures, I think it's fair to say. There's one thing I'd take away from your book. It's the huge amount of action that he managed to cram into one lifetime. What is it about Walter Raleigh for you that makes him so fascinating still and makes him really a significant figure that's worth a new biography? I think for me, I first came across Walter Raleigh, um, apart from just as a kind of general figure in our, in our history or through Blackadder, for example, um, as a writer. And really that has stayed with me throughout over the years. Um, when I was studying English literature, I read his travel, his account of his journey in search of El Dorado, and it was just magnificent writing. It took me right there. There was something very modern about it, something very edgy, something very thoughtful, but also uh, this was a man who, who, who knew how to use words. And I was hooked. I then discovered he'd written poetry and history and political tracts and all sorts of things. The only thing he didn't write, sadly, was drama, so that's why he's not performed every week down at the Globe. Um, the writing is really the tip of the iceberg, or it's the mark of the man, but the fact that he was uh, a politician, a courtier, a parliamentarian on the one hand, uh, a political theorist on the other, an adventurer, possibly even a pirate, um, a soldier, a sailor, a scientist, and a supporter of scientists. Um, the list does go on. So I think the term Renaissance man could be used for for him with 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 justice. But you mentioned him as an Elizabethan. And I think one of the things that I have uh, found, the more I've understood about his life, is that's just the beginning. Um, yes, he rose to dizzying heights from quite humble beginnings under Elizabeth. But his downfall in 1603, in the first few months of her successor, James I, is a remarkable story. There's something larger than life about everything that happens to Sir Walter Raleigh. I mean, even a, a dinner party in in uh, down in the country becomes an atheism inquiry because Sir Walter is making jokes that you shouldn't make about God. Uh, that's back in 1593. But back to 1603, when James I becomes king and Raleigh gets into really serious trouble. He survived so many political storms, so many political crises. He's the, he's the Teflon courtier. He, he gets away with it, often because he's such a good writer. Um, he's very persuasive. He's very charming. He can also find money where other people can't find money. But James I, the wheels come completely off and he's in the Tower of London. But he's still going to live for many more years and do, to me, even more remarkable things. To weave kind of right back to the beginning, as you mentioned, he came from relatively hum a humble background. He wasn't from one of these um, powerhouse royal families at court. Um, how on earth did he engineer this meteoric rise? It's a really good question, and it's something that, that the more I find out about him, I, I was very preoccupied by how, how did this fifth son of a Devon squire, Devon gentleman, reach such heights under Elizabeth I? And my first answer is, you know, what do you do if you're, you're from the wrong side of the tracks? You go to be a soldier. It's worked for countless young men over the years. So Raleigh does that, but he doesn't just go to be a soldier. He goes to Ireland. And again, we're back to writing. And he becomes the kind of go-between. Uh, his 
Man and Court is Walsingham, the Queen's uh, chief spy, fixer, what have you. And Raleigh is writing back from the front line. He's just Captain Raleigh. He's he's a nobody. But he gains Walsingham's trust, which is no mean thing. I mean, Walsingham didn't trust anybody, but as far as he could um, trust Raleigh, he trusted him to tell the truth about what was actually going on on the front line in Ireland. The other thing that Raleigh showed himself to be in Ireland was, again, for good or bad, and it is a hugely contested history, unsurprisingly, the English involvement in Ireland in this period of the 1570s, 1580s, atrocities everywhere. And Raleigh is, and this the dark side of him, Raleigh is a man who can make black seem white, can seem make an atrocity seem like a, a great moral victory. But he, he comes to the attention of Elizabeth the first because of this ability to report, to tell truth to power, to be honest, uh, be direct, to understand the realities of warfare. And in a wonderful moment, he goes to court. He actually gets to uh, it, back to England from Ireland. And Elizabeth, this is a, a battle-hardened man who needs no further uh, training or no further keeps him at court because... You know, um, apparently he needed further training. Uh, he really didn't need any further training, but his queen needed him near her. And, and Raleigh, always the opportunist, needed no encouragement. And that really was the beginning. So 1581, he's at court and Elizabeth wants him close by. As you mentioned, um, his writing is kind of a thread that runs throughout his life. And in your book, you have a lot of extracts from his writing. What can you deduce from it about who he was, what he was like as a character, what his motivations were, and something about his worldview as well. I've mentioned that, that Raleigh, part of his success was that he could make black seem white. He was a superb propagandist. Um, he was, I think, one of the most important people in the creation of the public image in the last years of Queen Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, Belphoebe, Astrea, all these goddesses that she's connected with, um, the mask of youth, the eternally young queen. And he he can do that. He can write that kind of stuff in his sleep. He can do the courtly dance, the, the beautiful poems, the praise, the sycophancy. At the same time, <laughs> I mentioned he can tell truth to power. There's something charismatically direct about him. And if you do, and I might be the only person who's done this, sit down and spend day after day after day reading his letters, just letter after letter. In one letter, he'll move from writing about the pragmatics and making sure there are enough kind of dried herring to keep his men fed to a the most powerful persuasive vision of uh, destiny and discovery and the ocean's beauty. And then he'll be back to the pilchards kind of thing. Um, so it's this dichotomy between the very practical, hard-headed man and the man who loves words, who's got this sense of wonder, this sense of excitement of the world. And that comes across in his writing, but also in a remarkable work that, for some quite interesting reasons, was completely hidden in its own time, never saw the light of day was discovered in the mid-19th century, and this is a collection of poems that Raleigh wrote addressed to Queen Elizabeth I. And they have, to me, a quite disturbing modernity about them. This is, he's writing in a way that nobody else writes at the time about a mind, disease, dis-ease, the, the collapse of, the collapse, he would call it melancholy, we would call it depression, 
he's writing uh, a mind breaking apart in front of us. And I, d I just don't think there's anything like it at the time. And that for me is why I keep coming back to Raleigh. He is a man absolutely of his time. And yet there's something about him that that is, as I say, startlingly modern as well. You mentioned there his relationship with Elizabeth and his ability to to flatter. He was very skilled at sycophancy. Mm. Is that how we should view their relationship, that it was very one-sided and it was just about his ability to flatter her and cajole her? Or was there, was there a more complex um, dynamic there? I, th I think there's a, there's a lot more going on than just flattery on the side of Raleigh and uh, Elizabeth. Well, for a start, what did Elizabeth get from him, apart from good PR, up to a point at least, until he turned on her? Um, there's a wonderful little exchange of poems between Raleigh and the Queen that survives. And again, we're so lucky with Sir Walter Raleigh because his life is phenomenally well documented. Even in his own time, people were drawn to him like moths to a flame. They would write about him, they'd write for him right against him. And um, so Raleigh is writing the usual, rather repetitive kind of poem, fortune had taken thee away, my love, fortune is there, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on page after page. It's pretty dire stuff. Um, but saying how wonderful Elizabeth is. And Elizabeth writes back to him kind of acerbically, slightly patronisingly, get a grip, Sir Walter, she seems to say. And that to me epitomises the thing that she knew it was a game. She was intelligent. She was one of the most intelligent rulers this country has ever had. And she knew how to use Raleigh. And she used him as a propagandist. He can make black seem white. I've said that now three times, but it's true. <laughs> and so in the only naval defeat, um, uh, the only ship that was captured, the only English ship was captured in the long, long running war with Spain was the Revenge. And Elizabeth turns to Raleigh to say, could you turn this abject defeat, this loss of a ship into a great moral victory? Yep. So Walter can do that. So she uses him for that. She uses him to manage parliament. She uses him as a kind of counterbalance to other uh, more obviously powerful courtiers, people like Robert Cecil and, of course, the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux. Um, did she love him? Did they love each other? I think I think I've ended up describing it as an eroticised political relationship rather than a political erotic relationship. And that isn't just hair splitting. Um it's amazing. I mean, I wish, wish I had a fiver for every time I'm asked, oh, did you have sex with Queen Elizabeth? My, I don't know, funnily enough. I mean, I wasn't there. And even if I was there, I wouldn't have known. <laughs> but um, I'm pretty sure no. Uh, wh why would she risk it? But she was attracted by the man and he got away with things that other people couldn't because of his charm and his charisma. And we're back to this thing about his truth-telling, his, his, his lack of conventional deference in some ways. So where does the fact that Walter Raleigh ended up in the tower because he had a secret marriage fit into this relationship? In this eroticised political relationship, loyalty is, is the, the most important value. Raleigh, Sir Walter Raleigh has been created by Elizabeth to be captain of the guard. He never got a place on the Privy Council, unlike more well-born figures or perhaps even more trustworthy figures. But he was captain of the guard. And that means in a monarchy based entirely on access, he is in the presence of the Queen. He has access to the Queen at all times, day and night. No wonder the rumours started. The woman that Raleigh marries secretly is a gentlewoman of the privy chamber. Another person who is in that inner circle, the circle of trust, 
And the fact that the two of them were going behind Elizabeth's back, so I'm not sure it's even about the sex, it's just about the lies, if not the videotape. But, but, but there is a kind of um, laziness almost in some of the accounts of Raleigh's fall. This was in the summer of 1592, because Elizabeth didn't immediately move against him as soon as she found out about the secret marriage, or even when she found out that they'd had a child and the child was a boy and the boy had been called Damari. And if you look this up, <laughs> and I had to, um, Damari is a royal name. We're going right back to the Plantagenet kings. Raleigh had paid somebody to provide him with a kind of royal pedigree. Yes, he had to go back 300 years, but you know, he had an ounce of royal blood in him. The Earl of Essex, again, somebody else who should have been much more lo loyal to Elizabeth, was one of the godfathers of this little baby. And I think it took a kind of a build of all these betrayals and the subtext of political ambition. Here were not just men behaving badly, but men behaving badly and bearing sons with quasi-royal names for Elizabeth finally to move against Sir Walter and indeed against Bess Throckmorton, the woman he'd married. So trust, but a, a political breach, a breach in the political fabric, I think is what Elizabeth feared. It seems somehow to kind of fit into a pattern in Raleigh's life of getting into trouble. Yes. Yeah, so whether it's, yeah, yeah um, investigations about atheism or the secret marriage or later on um, his writing under under James I, which obviously did not go down well. <laughs> Do you think there was, was he drawn to this kind of danger and controversy or, or was it <laughs> some kind of terrible blunder each time? That is such a good question. Because how could a man so intelligent and so capable with words and, and, and so courageous in many ways and so determined be so stupid <laughs> over and over again? And I don't think I have a simple answer to this, that the way he is, it is, you know, he is like the moth to the flame. He is the man drawn to the cliff edge. I, th I think part of it is one of his enduring qualities. And again, if you read his letters over and over again, is a kind of impatience, a frustration with the facades of life. And in a highly stratified, codified personal monarchy and a class system that makes us today look positively, you know, relaxed, even sitting here in Oxford in England, um, he, he's somebody who, who, who wants to cut through the red tape wants to just get on with the job. And I think that's what, in some sense, gets him into trouble. Um, but there's also the sense that he misjudges people terribly. And, and the most powerful example of this is King James I, that he got his king wrong. He read his king wrong again and again and again. Um, with James, how, how did he fail so spectacularly to win his favour? Raleigh, in the final years of Elizabeth's reign, like everybody else, was looking to see who, what would happen uh, when, when the Queen died. You weren't allowed to talk about it, of course, but uh, there was a lot of jockeying for uh, position. And Raleigh played that hand very badly. He, he didn't get in with the right people. He didn't put his money on James. He didn't, uh, and others were, were doing so and bad-mouthing Raleigh to the future king. So it didn't start well. Raleigh then made it spectacularly worse. 
So we have Raleigh in 1603, in the earliest months of King James's reign, realising as the weeks go by that there is nothing for him, nothing for him as James makes his way down towards London from Scotland. Realising that, Raleigh becomes involved, to what extent is still unclear, with a plot to place another Stuart, James's cousin, Arbella, significantly a woman, and I think everything I know about Raleigh tells me that he was more comfortable managing up a woman in power rather than a man. There are reasons for that. I can go into all sorts of issues about sexuality as well, if you want to. But the key point is, it's the political play that Raleigh is making. So he's he's trying to get Arbella Stuart onto the throne and he gets involved in this plot and it's found out. It's found out so quickly, so easily. It was never a very, if it, if, if it was a plot, it wasn't very well done. And that's what puts him on trial for his life. And that's within six months of James coming to the throne. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Another thing, of course, that Raleigh is Mm. connected to in the public imagination is colonialism. How successful actually were his colonial voyages? Because you suggest that perhaps, you know, he wasn't as foundational as we might think. Um, he certainly wasn't <laughs> as foundational uh, for, for a number of reasons. That um, Taking Roanoke for a start, Raleigh was certainly the, the, the guiding force, the, the man with the vision uh, of a, an English colony, an English settlement in North America. And, but as, you know, it's the lost colony of Roanoke, it was a disaster pretty much from beginning to end. And Raleigh himself never sailed there, never went there. He had other things on his mind, war with Spain, Elizabeth needed him back home. Um, So, but he sowed the seed of a new kind of imperialism. Um, And I think that is why he became almost poster boy to those in the 19th and certainly the early 20th century, that uh, nasty colonial countries raped and pillaged and simply took the the gold and the plunder 
good colonial countries created settlements and civilized the lands that they were they were in and that and that of course was the justification for imperialism through the 19th and 20th century um and i think raleigh is is responsible for the, for that uh, the language of that uh but then the other strand of that the search for el dorado which has preoccupied uh writers from vs napol through to uh Charlie nichols up to our own day Yes, it is a romantic story. You know, one man in a canoe paddling up the Orinoco in search of the uh, the golden king, El Dorado, in search of untold riches. So, yes, it's the stuff of legend, but it's a legend created by Raleigh himself. The actual journey up the Orinoco took about nine days. And it assumes this, I kind of think, and there was no gold. Again, Blackadder, my favourite historic resource. You know, you've got Raleigh arriving with green, your majesty. <laughs> and um, so there's this element of, of a gap between achievement, concrete achievement, and the stories told, uh, which I find fascinating in, in some ways. Um, we've also got Ireland. And one of the things I wanted to get across in writing about Raleigh as a colonial figure, as an imperial figure, is that it all began, and in fact, it continued for many, many years in Ireland. And so, again, it all comes back to this um, idea of him as a propagandist and his writing and him kind of creating a legend of himself, almost. I mean, I'm sitting here now next to one of my most treasured possessions, which is a folio, 1614 folio edition of Raleigh's uh, small work. I'm using irony. (laughs) The History of the World. It's enormous. It's... um, thousands of pages long, uh, beautiful handwritten maps. And Raleigh wrote this remarkable book while he was a prisoner in the Tower of London. And even more remarkably, and this tells us something about man, he is legally dead. He's condemned as a traitor. He is a nobody. We should not know about him. And yet he writes this work and he gets it published. And one of the things that fascinates me, beyond even the Elizabeth Raleigh relationship, political relationship, is that between the Crown, the Stuart Crown and Raleigh. And in a head-to-head, the Crown just mess up every single time. Why? Why would you let one of your most prominent political prisoners write thousands of pages of history? And history, remember, is not some dry academic discipline which we put over there. History in Raleigh's time, and, and it should be in ours, is how we understand our own lives now. And Raleigh makes that absolutely clear. That's what he's doing. He's writing about the past, and through the past, he's looking at the present, and they let him publish it. Yes, they withdrew it after the Crown withdrew it after three weeks or four weeks, but the damage had been done. So I'm I'm rather excited to actually have a copy of this wonderful book. <laughs> so in his time in the Tower of London, mm. he was writing this this massive tome. Mm. He had a 500-strong library. He did, like, yes. Um, was, was it... How we would imagine an imprisonment in the Tower of London. I'm thinking, you know, like stale bread and a cup of water. And shackles. Yeah. And, yeah is that yeah. completely... Um, I think most of the time that is completely uh, wrong. Um, if you visit the Bloody Tower now uh, in, in the Tower of London, there are a number of rooms. Um, Raleigh most of the time was allowed his personal servants. He was allowed regular visits from his wife, Bess Throckmorton. Uh, he even had his third 
his third son was born in the Tower of London and indeed christened in the church of the Tower of London. So it, it's kind of closer to house arrest than perhaps our traditional idea of a dungeon. However, when things, when there was a political crisis, the gunpowder plot is a perfect example of that, things would get more, more difficult. So until the gunpowder plot, there was a chap who used to row up the river and bring Raleigh um, his favourite beer, pretty much, and just pass it through to him. You know, he had supplies coming in and they stopped that. Um, at other times, he wasn't allowed to walk on the walls of the tower because he would look insolently at people. Because it was a bit of a tourist attraction. You'd go there to see the animals. It was the zoo. You'd go and see where the Earl of Essex had been executed or where Anne Boleyn had been executed. And you'd say, oh, look, there's the most famous political prisoner in the country doing his afternoon stroll. Um, so at different times, there were different clampdowns, but it wasn't imprisonment as we know it. To me, it's fascinating the way in which his wife, Bess, then stepped up to become the kind of go-between, the mediator between him and the outside world. He didn't like that very much. She, she grew to know her own power. Um, but she was very important and friends on the outside were very important getting his writings out. So as you mentioned, it, it seems absolutely remarkable that they allowed this book to be published, but it was and was used by um, later generations. How did it kind of live on after Raleigh had been executed. In Raleigh's history of the world, he offers a sustained and angry critique of individual monarchs. And it took the next generation to kind of join those dots and offer a sustained critique of monarchy itself. The following generations, first the parliamentarians and, and then the kind of religiously motivated parliamentarians, men like R Oliver Cromwell, admired Raleigh because he he gave them the ammunition, he gave them the the perspective, the justification for, as I say, their, their all-out assault on the, on the very idea of monarchy. It, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that the only secular work that Oliver Cromwell recommended his son Richard to read was Raleigh's History of the World. But it wasn't just the history of the world, though that was important to future generations. The history was suppressed and Raleigh, again, this is one of his qualities. He picked himself up, he dusted himself down and he did something else, possibly even more outrageous, <laughs> which is um, first, first rule of, of political life, don't put your political prisoners in the same place because funnily enough, they will talk to each other and they will radicalise each other. And that's exactly what happened in 1614, the year in which the history of the world was withdrawn. Um, and Raleigh and some parliament, a parliamentarian, John Hoskins, was put in the Tower of London. And out of those conversations with Raleigh, uh, with with Hos between Hoskins and Raleigh came a remarkable manuscript work. Raleigh wouldn't get anything else into print in his lifetime. Manuscript work, but manuscripts do did incredibly uh, powerful political work in in that time um, because you're passing them around. It can bypass censorship. You can go fly under the radar. And this work, it was ostensibly a dialogue, but it was a dialogue between a justice of the peace, a worthy, upright, honest, decent justice of the peace, and a councillor of state, a privy councillor. And they're arguing about parliament. And the justice is saying, we need a strong parliament. We need the monarch to be accountable to parliament. And the councillor is saying, no, 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 no. You know, parliament is just window dressing. The is a defence of absolute monarchy. So you can see for that 
early generation, in the, those first 10, 15 years of King James's reign, when he's beginning the struggles between the Stuart crown and parliament are just beginning, Raleigh provides more ammunition for them. And that work, which was circulated in manuscript in the 1610s, is then published in 1628, very tricky year for Parliament and the Crown, led to 12 years of personal rule by Charles I. And then when that ends, in 1640, it's published again, and it is published again and again and again through the years of civil war and the Republic. See, I think this is really interesting because if you went to the average person on the street and said, Sir Walter Raleigh, what do you know? I think they'd have said, he's the man who laid down his cloak, he loved the Queen. They wouldn't think of him as a political radical. So why do you think that that part of his um, legacy has, has been forgotten? The, the popular vision of Raleigh, the swashbuckler, the cloak laying, the, even the tobacco, is, has stuck. It, it's very cinematic. There's something very um, cinematic about his entire life. And, it's, and the romance not the right word at all, but between him and Elizabeth or the triangles, what have you, the golden age explores that in film recently. But the, that's been part of our, our cultural currency for a very long time. Um, I think the legacy of colonialism is is profoundly problematic to us now. And it may be debated in some places, but perhaps we don't really want to look too carefully or too closely at Raleigh's role as an apologist for um, destroying Native American culture. Um, so perhaps that has fallen off the radar a bit. But I think your point about the, the as it were, internal politics, about parliament, about tyranny, um, we've lost sight of it. I, th I think there are a number of reasons that we we don't fully recognise Raleigh as the political writer that that he is, the political theorist, the political thinker, and and um, influential figure, as, which is what I see him as. In, certainly in the seventeenth century, and, and I think again in the nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, one very simple reason is is that though he wrote an awful lot of stuff, it's not the stuff we now read. Um, I think my mum, you know, being educated in the 30s, 40s, was the last generation to be forced to read those big, thick decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Macaulay things, and indeed the history of the world. So nobody's going to pick up a folio volume anymore and, and read that. We're not going to search out a political pamphlet that is writing about tyranny. Um, it's not part of our cultural currency, whereas we are still seeing the plays, thank goodness, of Shakespeare and of Marlowe and of Ben Jonson. So there's that. We don't read prose anymore. But I think there's also the sense that he lived so many lives and he lived them all so intensely. It's just too easy to, to go for the swashbuckler, to go for the pirate, to go for the, the cloak-laying courtier lover of Queen Elizabeth. It is distinctly less glamorous, maybe, to, to consider him as a political thinker. His life experiences pushed him, as it were, to, to write about what he saw. So his military or naval experiences, whether in Ireland or fighting the Spanish uh, or on the expeditions to the Azores, wherever he went, led to him writing discourses on war, how to fight wars, how to fund wars. He was a great... Um, it's not complicated stuff, but the fact that he stitched it all together into these magnificent works in his imprisonment. In fact, James gave him the chance to become 
you know, to to follow through. He gave him the time to to write these these sustained works of political critique. You you bookend the book with Raleigh's execution, which is pretty much as dramatic as his life, um, including a forty five minute long speech on the scaffold. How has that shaped? How did it shape how people thought of him at the time and how we think of him now? The final 45 minutes of Sir Walter Raleigh's life are critical, absolutely critical to the fact that we're even talking about him now. Because he had spent the previous 13, 15 years in prison. He was legally dead. When he was imprisoned, he was the best hated man in England. Um, yes, I'm passionate about the history of the world and it was a bit of a, you know, it raised eyebrows at the time. People read it, people bought it. But really, Raleigh's execution should not have mattered. And if we're looking at it, as I say, as a head-to-head between the Crown and Raleigh, this was another mistake on the part of the Stuart monarchy. They gave a man who was incredibly good with words a chance to speak for 45 minutes to people with pens in their hands. We've actually got a note from one of Raleigh's most loyal supporters, Thomas Harriet, wonderful scientist, thinker in his own right, who, who joshed it all down. And the speech, it, it went viral. It absolutely went viral. It was being copied and copied and recopied all around London. And in that speech, Raleigh, apart from his behaviour, it was his final greatest performance. And this is what people hated about the man and often still do. They don't trust him because he was an actor. He would lie and lie and lie if he felt it was justified the end. He's Machiavellian, the end justified the means. And on that scaffold, knowing that he was going to be executed, and we can romanticise that as much as we like, but it's a horrible, horrible way to go. Um, He showed such self-control, such poise, such ability to control the moment he put in that incredible, that Oscar-winning performance. And he, once again, told truth to power. He was speaking to the crowd, to the people, and to God. And he was challenging the king, because it was the king that had brought him to that scaffold, and the king was wrong. And there's this incredible moment. Um, when, you're, when you're reading accounts of this, this speech, it's often, it's, it's, it's like the Hand of the Baskervilles, it's what you don't hear. In only one copy of the speech did it say, God save the king. When somebody's executed, the executioner holds up the head and says, God save the king. In every other one, those words are missing, which suggests to me either they were not said or that people were so enthralled by Raleigh's speech that that moment of asserting the monarch's power, the authority of the situation, disappears from the record. And I think that sums up what Raleigh did in those 45 minutes. I have argued elsewhere, as they say in her biography of Raleigh's wife, that she then took the battle and ran with it and made sure that people did not forget her husband. Um, But that, as it were, is another story. The groundwork was laid in those 45 minutes. I think it's really calling for a blockbuster biography or a Netflix series by the sound of it. (laughs) Definitely, definitely, as long as I can be in on the casting decisions. (laughs) Um, A line of yours that I really like from the conclusion is you you say, love him or hate him, you must reckon with him. Mm. So... When you came to the end of writing this biography, you closed the final page, how did you feel about Raleigh? Well, (laughs) that is a tricky question. I think anybody who has lived with me, my family and friends, know that that Raleigh's been around for a long time in my life. I've had this 
uh, on-off thing with him <laughs> for years and years and years. It was very funny writing the book about his wife. I thought I'd get him out of my system because, you know, the man was a scoundrel. He was a liar. He was a bad boy in so many ways. And, um, and in fact, a reviewer of that book said, you know, she really doesn't like Sir Walter Raleigh. And I, yeah, well, I am fascinated by the man. It is a life of such complexity, such energy, such... Um, It shows how a life can be fully lived. And I, I'm full of admiration for that. At the same time, I the, the fascination is what remains. These moments when the 400 years that separate our time from Raleigh's collapse and time folds in upon itself. And I had one of those moments when I was in the, the British Library and was able to look through a notebook I, I do like my stationery, I have to say. I, I'm a great collector of notebooks. And, you know, when you get a new notebook and you're starting a new project, maybe people don't this, but I've been known to. You number the pages because, of course, it's going to be filled with you know, your beautiful thoughts and, and, and all the rest of it. And Raleigh does that in this notebook. Uh, and he fills some of the pages and, with beautiful maps and hand-drawn maps and notes and trying to make connections, trying to understand his world. And that moment when I saw that notebook and really felt that connection with the man, and he's in the Tower of London when he's doing this, and the, 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 the blank page and the ink and, the, and the, the imagination are his only connection with the world out there, the world that fascinated him, um, whether it be travelling up the Orinoco or riding his horse down to Devon and Cornwall, or just sailing on the Thames. Um, so I think it's that fascination with the world that he sustained right up until the end. And that's what draws me back to him. He is not a good man <laughs> by any shape of the imagination. He did terrible things. He, perhaps even worse, justified terrible things. I'm not a rally apologist but I think we can understand our story as a nation the better if we see the man from all sides. That was Anna Beer talking to Ellie Cawthorn. Patriot or Traitor? The Life and Death of Sir Walter Raleigh is out now, published by One World. And you can read an article by Anna on Raleigh in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone off sale in the UK but is still available in many other countries and as a back issue and digital edition. And that's about all for today, but do join us again on Monday when Dan Jones and Marina Amaral will be explaining how they've brought colour back to history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A 
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.